Surprise, distribution is king. And time is running out for big media, or is it? This is episode 39 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, surprise, 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 distribution is king. And here I thought content was king all this time. I don't know, time. how many times have we used this king thing in one of these titles? I think we should look back at that as a trend going on here. You know, <laughs> it's not just us, Tom. I mean, everyone uses that something is king. I was looking the other day, something else, video has killed the radio star, something has killed the something star so many times in so many articles, <laughs> I'm quite sick of it. And they keep killing other people over and over. It's really irritating. Anyway, um, this is based on a piece that I really enjoyed from Digiday, actually a podcast and an in a, in a, uh, editorial piece. Did you listen to the podcast, by the way? No, you're going to have to film it. I did, it was terrific. <laughs> It was, it's called Bleacher Report Embraces Content Everywhere Strategy. Bleacher Report, as you know, is the sports publishing upstart. It's no ESPN, but it's certainly up there. And uh, this piece was, a, was an interview with Rory Brown, who was employee 12 at Bleacher Report. <laughs> I don't know why they do those counts, right? Employee, there's some status in being employee 12. Yeah, Not at the companies that are gone. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So here's what he said. 2016 is the year that as a publisher, if you're not embracing the content everywhere approach and you're not coming up with a way to have conversations with advertisers about how you're going to bake their brands into content on these platforms, 2017 is going to roll around and you'll be in trouble. Hmm. We are okay sacrificing some of these more traditional audience metrics this year in order to build a strategy that we know is way healthier for the brand, way healthy for our revenue down the road. What he's talking about is essentially saying, you know, the idea that we've got to have this home base, that everything has to be about this home base, that we've got to attract people to our home base, our home brand, whatever it is, is less important than making sure that we're connecting with consumers wherever they are and making sure our content is in front of them on the platforms they want to be at. Okay. You know, it's it's interesting because it, how many times have people said this? You have to be where the audience is, you know. And, mm-hmm. and yes, content everywhere, maybe, unless you figured out how to make your your media property, what your whatever your platform is, a destination. It, it's interesting. It's no different than like the bricks and mortar retail environment. If your storefront is in a high foot traffic location, you're good. Mm-hmm. If you're in a mall and people stop coming to the mall, you're in trouble. But you can also be Costco, where people drive out of their way to shop there, right? Now, driving out of one's way with media probably means, what, opening a separate app or watching a mm-hmm. particular show at a particular time and day. But it's not that it can't be done. It's that it's really difficult to do. And later on in the article... He does make a case for building the brand as a destination. Yeah, he. let me read that phrase and then we'll talk about it. The current media wars are not going to be won on direct audience numbers. Brand is the big winner. We've got to reach as many people as we possibly can. And the best way to do that is be, be creating content that might live on Bleacher Report, but lives in another number of other places as well. So what he's arguing, Tom, is that, yes, building brand is the most important thing, but because that brand is a trusted source, not because that brand is a destination like Costco. You see what I mean? I, no, I think I, he's no, acknowledging. I, I do. I, I see it, but I, I don't know. Mark, this is, this is going to be the big 
in retrospect, when we look back at, at these media brands, mm-hmm. that's going to be the big question. What did it make sense mm-hmm. to spread this content all around, you know, these different platforms and not create this home base that people were engaged with and invested in and believed in and developed a habit around? Because it's it's easy to ignore content that's popping up all over the place if you haven't turned that into some type of habitual, you know, response. I, I don't know. But can you fight human nature? When content does pop up all over the place, in the places where people want to be, and you're not in those places? <laughs> no, I'm with you. I mean, th- again, we come back. Isn't it, an arrog- isn't it arrogance to suggest that you need to come to me? No, I, listen, me I, come to you? I understand that. But... Again, the the article keeps referring to the audience, the cut, the customer, as traffic. That's what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. This idea that the, you know this high foot traffic model, and that's fine, but it's not the only model, and it's certainly not the end game. I said it. He describes the end game when he says that the current media wars are not going to be won on direct audience mm-hmm. numbers, right? I.e., people coming to my website, right? Brand is the big winner. What does that mean? Brand is the big winner. That see, this is what I, this is. What, let's say you. Let's say that you're putting your brand. Let's let's go with retail. Let's say you're putting your brand on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. As long as you can put it right in people's face at eye level on the shelf and get them to see it, then brand is the big winner. What if it's surrounded by store brands? Right where they've gone out and mm-hmm. done design, and they and they've put it right at eye level, and they've taken your brand and pushed it down a little bit. Right now, brand isn't such a big winner anymore. Well, because your attention's being grabbed by something else. That may be true, but isn't it also true that people make that people have exactly that choice in a supermarket environment, and people choose brand over uh, commodity brand every day because brand is where the power is. My interpretation, of what he's saying is. Look, we're going to put our content everywhere, but it's going to rise above everyone else's in terms of its glow because people have a relationship, a trust with this brand called Bleacher Report, even if they don't regularly travel to the destination by that name. Well, that's what he's thinking. Yeah, well, look, guess what? All of the, all of the big consumer product brands are all running into problems as well with this idea. <laughs> and, and because he says, if we can differentiate platform experiences in the right mm-hmm. way. <laughs> then we can start to craft content experiences that are built for the right person at the right time, depending on the platform. You know, what he's saying is, okay, we know what the game is. Now the question is, can they play it? Can they play Against it? everyone else that wants to play it. Right. I don't know. Right. I don't know. And what it's also interesting to me, I think he nailed kind of the nub of the challenge here, because after all, this is an advertising supported platform, right? Mm-hmm. Whether the content lives on or off Bleacher Report, it's an ad supported platform. And here's, again, this, I'm going to reread this because this to me is the central element. If you're not embracing the content everywhere approach and you're not coming up with a way to have conversations with advertisers about how you're going to bake their brands in content on these platforms. No, that's big. That's big. I agree with that's that. That's the key. Mm-hmm. So what he's essentially saying is, look, we're not going to count on banner ads. We're not going to count on ads on our platform at all. In fact, in fact, we're not going to count on ads. We're going to count on providing services to our clients such that their business goals can be uh, realized 
by the co-creation of content on any platform they want, whatever platform it is that happens to attract an audience that is of interest to them. And our expertise, our you know, differentiated value, we argue, is going to be we have the ability to create content that works for you because we understand this audience that you care about, no matter where that audience lives. They are, in other words, part agency, part publisher, right? Okay. But now, now here's the problem with that. And, and I'm not saying he can't do it because he, he, he rightfully is doing it. Now, let's assume now that, that we have them doing that. And it's not hidden. There is no barrier to intellectual and, you know, this this entry point where you say, I don't get what they're doing. You can see exactly what they're doing, mm -hmm. right? So let's say mm -hmm. it's them doing it. And now somebody with much, much deeper pockets with, with established long-term relationships with advertisers, you know, ESPN, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't care who it is, says, okay, we're going to do that now. And they go out to all of their relate with the relationships they built mm -hmm. over the years and they and they do the exact same thing they bake all this stuff in and all that and they go spreading all of this information all over the place who's going to win then I, I i need to see some type of competitive approach that creates some kind of barrier other than that anybody can get into this game and the guy who's going to win is the guy with the deep pockets and the long-term relationships and the scale. And, the, and I, yeah. I agree with you. My answer to your question is clearly ESPN. The issue is going to be, does ESPN devote enough attention to that task? Because for uh, Bleacher Report, um, it's all in. <laughs> it's all hands oh, on know. deck on this. For ESPN, it's, you know, the corner office of the 50th building focusing on this one. So how much of their strategy is going to be oriented? In other words, how much... How much revenue do they leave on the table for the bleacher reports of the world to pick up? That's going to be the answer to your question ultimately because I completely agree with you. One can easily foresee a scenario whereby you look down the road and the infinite number of choices on the internet are really effectively monetized and controlled by a handful of players. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what's going to happen. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Time is running out for big media or is it? Tom, this is from a couple of pieces from uh, Redef. A couple of pieces that I'd like to hold in my hands, except they're so heavy <laughs> because there's so many pages long. Um, but we're going to try and boil it down. This is Redef's uh, attempt to kind of analyze uh, the future of big media and television from a couple of articles. One is called After TV, Video's, Video's Future Will Be Bigger, More Diverse and Precarious Than Its Past. And the other is called By Obsessing Over the Present, Big Media Has Forgotten Its Past and Endangered Its Future, But It's Not Too Late. <laughs> or maybe it is. These articles kind of begin with a conversation about the importance of attention, something you and I have talked about before. Um, if attention is the media industry's atomic unit of currency, feeds are its mint, and the bigger the feed, the better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love these. These headlines are killing me. I, who's writing this? You, right? Time is running yeah, out. Yeah, I'm writing it. I know. Mark, time's <laughs> running out for all of us. Maybe that should have been the headline. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, it's, it has run out for just about every other legacy brand. So why not big media brands as well, right? I mean, it's, the, the marketplace is shaking everybody up. Mm -hmm. It was an insightful piece, though. It really was. And, and the idea that people won't read long-form content, that's crazy. Because somebody had, I mean, you read it. No, you didn't read the whole thing. But <laughs> I skimmed parts of it, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I like I like what he's saying. The feeds word's interesting, isn't it? That he uses this word feeds. Yeah. Feeds like like it's a trough. 
that the animals go to, <laughs> right? So, well, that is kind of its intention. Yeah, that's right? what he's saying. So, as feed scales, it enters uh, a virtuous cycle of success. Right. Audiences bring advertisers and creatives. Viewer stickiness brings, he says, leverage over other, you know, over distributors and content suppliers. Right. And then he says, very interesting, perhaps most significantly, programming gets easier. And I started thinking about that. And I said, yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it, about like TV series and, I mean, yeah. even books. We become like addicted. It becomes habitual. And in some strange way, it kind of like validates us and makes us feel comfortable, right? The characters like become part of our identity. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I still miss Andy Sipowitz from uh, NYPD Blue when that ended. I said, mm -hmm. I miss those characters. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's easier once you get people hooked to create more and more of these shows. The, the, the next show doesn't have to be blockbuster like the last one. Well, also, the, I mean, this is why we have so many Roman numerals in the movie theater, right? Exactly. Uh, this is why Disney is going hog wild over sequels to Indiana Jones and, uh, and, and Star Wars because, um, uh, because, because success begets success, because scale begets scale, because hits beget hits. I mean, um, it, you know, the goal in the music industry isn't to generate hits, it's to generate hit makers. Yeah, exactly. Because if you can generate a hit maker, the hits keep coming. <laughs> No, no, he's, he's right. But he's right. So he's the right lesson about here, TV too, though. I mean, right, he's right the about lesson, it. But the lesson here is, you know, as feed scales, it enters a virtuous cycle of success, i.e. the goal is to be popular, you know? <laughs> so I get that. No, listen, what's really telling? I, when, he, when he writes that the average home receives, what do he say, a few hundred plus channels right. compared to like less than 50 prior to the turn of the millennium? Right. So... How many do we watch? He said around what, four more channels? Four more. He didn't give the actual number, but it looks to me from the chart about 18 in total right now. Yeah, so doubling the number of channels from 100 to 200 channels showed no growth in the number of no channels growth. that people viewed. And the line on the percentage of uh, television uh, received, uh, watched versus received keeps dropping. Right, so all it's doing is stealing. Watching traditional it, it's just TV per month by age group. That's all it's doing. You can see um, 65 plus is up by 14%, um, but everybody else, especially teens and 20-somethings, are down 30 and 40%. Yeah, that's because the, and, and, you know, and it's shocking to have, like when some, some people in the industry look at these charts because they say, well, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, it's like they don't have competition for people's attention. Mm -hmm. Look at video games. Four out of five U.S. households play video games. The average age of a gamer is, I don't know, mid-30s. Mm. And they spend well over 150 hours a week playing video games. Mm -hmm. It's approaching $100 billion as an industry. And growing like crazy. So uh, does TV, they look at each other and they go, we got to beat that show. Okay, good. But do you know people aren't watching? They're playing video games. Well, this is, I think, leads to the theme of the other piece, which is the uh, recommended strategies for big media. And one of the things they talk about there is, you know, with, they make the analysis uh, or the analogy between telephony footprint leading to cable footprint, leading to broadband footprint. And now they're saying, what's the next footprint? And they say, it's going to be the attention footprint. <laughs> <laughs> they got a bit of a plug right into your ear. <laughs> the attention footprint. As digital grows its share of total media time, already at 47%, measurement improves and marketers become more comfortable with online advertising. 
TV will inevitably cede share. Um, and that's going to mean that if you believe that attention and engagement are the atomic unit of the media industry, nothing should be more alarming. I love that phrase, the atomic unit I know. of the media industry. The equivalent of the double helix in biology is attention. Uh, this is, and indeed it may be. I don't know. Look, it, this is no different. Uh, it, you know, the first piece, he, he talked about these feeds. He said you could look at it three ways. And, and, you know, media feeds. And, and yes. to me, this applies to all brands, not just media brands. He said you can be a, sc- oh, you can be a scale feed. That's like right. Amazon.com, right? If you like, you know, you yes. go there and there's something for everyone. Why go anywhere else? Right. It's difficult to compete against that. So the Netflix would be the media sc- scale feed right now. Right. But so if you have something truly unique that you can't get on Amazon, then you'll leave Amazon and go over to that platform. But if you can get it on Amazon, you'll just stay there. Right? That's right. Now, the social feed that he mentioned, what is that? That's Facebook, isn't it? Or maybe YouTube. That's Facebook. That's Snapchat. That's, that's the idea there is that it's a feed that integrate that bundles different kinds of content, personal, impersonal, photo, video, text, visual, audio, ephemeral, and evergreen. But social. Social. But, but not, a, not, a, not a, like a, a re, you know, not like a retail, but more of a social feed. He, anybody that tries to build their own social network that rivals these social networks that exist, they're crazy. Well, not only that, but he has in here the sentence, how to establish a social feed. The short answer is you can't. Right. You're just wasting <laughs> your time and money. The interesting play of all the three that he mentioned was the third one, the, this thing called this yes. identity feed. Yes. Right? Because what all brands, great brands, are built around people's identity. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem with that approach. Identity today, because of this no barrier to entry on, with the internet, is almost infinitely, if this is a word, segmentable. Mm-hmm. So let's say I see an identity brand like Glenn Beck's Blaze, the Blaze, right? Right. So what, I, what do I do? I study the audience. I look for people who are on the edge that aren't really being served by that brand's voice. Then I create a more passionate, targeted offering around a different voice based on my ability to understand and appeal to these people, and I take a little piece of that away. Okay. Why can't I do that? You can do that, but eventually you run into not enough scale, right? Eventually you fall down the long tail. So there's some balancing act. It's Even for identity feeds, there's got to be sufficient well, scale. Well, again, right? scale to support content production because distribution is cheap. Well, if, and, and you know what? And it's cheaper to make TV today than it's ever been, too, right? If you if you if you take uh, um, uh, the the argument of the writer, they'll say, for example, sci-fi, or as my wife and I call it, Siffy. <laughs> <laughs> he says it's a terrific television network that ent- entertains a central media genre. But how many science fiction fans want to wear, let alone buy a Siffy T-shirt? Attend a SIFI convention or consider the network essential to being a science fiction fan. A true identity feed is a vertical channel merged with a lifestyle brand, fan club, and digital third place. In other words, it lives across platforms and its business model is bigger than simply, you know, any one of those those elements. It's more like Harley. No, I'm, right? I'm with you. Listen, I agree with you, but there's, way to par- there's ways of partnering in doing this if you can build a strong enough brand. Talk about that. Like I told you, I'll, I, I used this example a million times. Red Bull was a little energy can of energy drink. Now it's a huge media company. Mm-hmm. 
It's a, it's a, it actually it's an identity brand. Yes, absolutely. I like the I like what the author said. Boy, he was way off. The guy that wrote the second article. I, I I'm going to quote him directly. He said, "Traditional media needs to fundamentally reframe its beliefs and strategies." He's saying in order to <laughs> take advantage of this digital disruption. Here's the uh-huh. thing, Mark. I know a little bit about belief and strategy. You, you cannot <laughs> you can't reframe a belief. Beliefs are not these intellectual constructs that can be challenged and replaced with more positive, adaptive ideas. It does not work that way. Beliefs are emotional constructs that are driven by some overwhelming desire. There is no corporate meeting in the world, I don't care if they've got reams of evidence in there, is going to change any executive's beliefs. See, it's not that they're obsessing over the present. It's that they really like the present. And no, right? Well, of course. Not only that, but so do their stockholders like point. the present, which is why it's also hard to take these immensely risky bets about the future because I read about it in an overlong piece <laughs> on Redux. Well, that's the point. No <laughs> one has been able to paint a picture of a different future for these folks that they like better than today. <laughs> <laughs> that's and so that's true. belief. <laughs> Tom, it's time for rants and raves. What do you have this week? Okay, I think this is a rant, um, but you can tell me. So you love movies, right? I know you do. Love them. All right. Have you ever wanted to go to the theater, but you didn't have anyone to go with? So you, know, you didn't really want to go by yourself? Uh, I suppose so. All right. I'm not I mean, afraid to go by myself. All right, fine. Just agree with me so we can keep this flowing. <laughs> well, guess what? Now there's an app for that. It's a Chinese app. They've got close to 50,000 users. And, what the, and, the, and the name of the app, I can't say it, it roughly translates to Come Rent Me, where people exchange their free time uh-huh. for money. Not their skills, mind mm. you, their time. So here's how it works. As a user, you browse a bunch of strangers, and then you choose someone to go to the movies with or to maybe grab a cup of coffee because you don't want to be alone. And once you pay for this stranger on the app, you can chat with him or her through WeChat to make sure it's a fit. If not, I think you can both cancel. So the fees, oh. they range from like less than a dollar to more than $30 an hour. So this is pretty sad. Oh. I, I mean, I know it's only in China and it's not here yet, but you know, it's probably coming. Pro- and, and like with a different name, like I, probably like Uber Me or Air Me and You, something like that. I just hope I never <laughs> see this thing. <laughs> Air me and you. <laughs> I just hope I never see this app. I mean, I mean, that's kind of sad. It's really sad. I'd rather see one where you have to choose like an elderly shut-in or a homeless person and take them to lunch in a movie. Oh, that would work. Right? Yeah, that would work. <laughs> Air elder. Perfect there you idea. Go. I love that. I'm all over that. Let me pick... No, seriously, imagine this thing. Um, I don't want to go. I don't want to go get a cup of coffee. Let me look. On, oh, there's a there's a stranger. Let me take. The, I don't know. I think we're losing it. This is this. We're out of control. Oh wow. Yeah, I can't imagine something I would like less than that. But that's just me. Oh, that's terrific. Um, okay, I have a couple for you this week. I have a rant and a rave. I'm going to start with the rant, and this one is squarely your oh, fault. Oh boy, because you. You sent this to me only because you knew it would irritate me. <laughs> and it's, the, it, it's a piece well, from... Well, you have to remind uh, me because I, I sent a lot of those to people. <laughs> I, I don't even know where it's from, but it's called Movie Review Aggregator Ratings Have No Relationship oh, with Box Office like Success. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, which I would translate, I would put, do an alternate title, 
Uh, I'm shocked, shocked that there's gambling in this establishment. <laughs> I mean, this is an argument why some people really... Now, this is a relatively long article with tons of data that took a lot of analytical time on someone's part, which argues to me that some people really need a hobby. <laughs> because the premise here, and which, you know, by the way, the problem begins with the premise, which is held only by this individual and no one else. We expect a positive linear relationship. Movies with high Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter scores should have high box office revenue, and inversely, movies with low scores should have low <laughs> box office revenue. Evidently, this individual actually expected that outcome. He alone expected that outcome. Nobody else expects that outcome for the movies with high ratings on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic or IMDb to be the ones with box office success. Look, I'll just say for the record what everyone already knows. It is not the purpose of these reviews and reviewers to reflect potential box office revenue. Uh, their real role in the Hollywood ecosystem, at least, in their own minds, their role, their role is, is ego. But in the, in the, in the, in the uh, a sphere of the Hollywood ecosystem, their role is to provide some positive juice, some word of mouth, some opinion leadership that can help movies which can't alone get a lot of people to go into the theater because there's no Roman normal and there's no superhero and there's no character from Star Wars in it. <laughs> that's the purpose. That's why, that's why the movies of the year are announced in September, October, November, December, January. That's why the quote-unquote Oscar contenders always come out at the end of the year even though they actually tend to come out in January. <laughs> but people like me get to see them at the end of the year so that we can nominate them so that they can get uh, best picture uh, uh, cred so that people can be interested in them, not because they've heard they're good, but because they actually get a nomination from an awards uh, oh, outfit God. like mine. So you're saying these things aren't like recommendation engines. No. these Look, right. these are, there's no correlation between whether or not a movie is good and whether people go to it. I mean, do I really need to spell it out like that? I think you do. <laughs> but look at, so if, if this guy spent all that time, obviously he's not the only one that are looking to these sites to try to figure out what to go see or what to rent or what to watch. Maybe we should figure out an algorithm. We'll grab like Redbox and Rotten Tomatoes and you know Netflix and Amazon and, and we'll, you have to punch in your age and you know whether you're... Oh, I'm going to start working on that. You got to start working on that. And let's call it there's a sucker born every minute.com. <laughs> all right. Okay, I have one other uh, – this one's a uh, – this one's a pure rave. I just love this one. I heard about – this has been around for a couple of years. I only heard about this yesterday. I was at an event, and a guy from that event was uh, – worked with Neil Patel. Do you know who Neil Patel is? Sounds really familiar. Neil is, uh, is a well-known figure in Silicon Valley. He's uh, an analytics junkie. He's like the go-to guy in analytics, in oh, fact. Oh, yeah, yeah, Very yeah, yeah. measuring everything, testing everything like crazy, a digital marketer. He uh, specializes in internet marketing, conversion, optimization, growth hacking, et cetera. Anyway, he's always trying stuff, which is what I love about this guy. And a guy I met uh, just yesterday works with Neil, and he was telling me a story, which I had to research, um, and the story was of how Neil spent $57,000 on uh, Instagram marketing. And I thought, well, okay, well, you know, people do that, right? Nothing surprising about that. Um, and it worked really well for him. Now, I know what you're thinking, Tom. <laughs> well, 
So we spent 57 grand on uh, ads on Instagram. What's the big deal? Well, these weren't ads, Tom. What he did was he happened to know a guy, Neil did, who knew somebody who ran an agency that uh, retained um, uh, bikini models. Okay. (laughs) So Neil uh, spent $57,000 on this agency so that they would hire all these bikini models with huge followings on uh, Instagram to post pictures of themselves in bikinis posing with a sign that said, who is Neil Patel? Get the hell out of here. (laughs) Oh, my God. So... And I said, I said to this guy, I said, well, why wouldn't you just go to Fiverr, find some woman who can hold a sign for $5? And he said, because that woman doesn't have tens of thousands of followers on Instagram. And I said, touche, okay? So Neil wrote this about this experiment. Every time one of these girls posted about me, I would receive one or two text messages from entrepreneurs who have businesses that generate at least $10 million in revenue asking me how I knew the model that mentioned me. Oh, my goodness. Now, understand what Neil's business model is, right? He's trying to help guys who uh, have businesses that generate at least $10 million in revenue. He doesn't care about people who are looking at these models who aren't guys who don't have that kind of revenue. Uh, so he so profiled, he profiled these guys and said, here's what they'd like to yeah, know. He said, not only that, but the number of Google searches for my name increased by 71%. Although search traffic increased for my name, I wasn't able to generate any more leads. I was generating non-qualified traffic to my websites, of course. The text messages received from other entrepreneurs, on the other hand, will eventually lead to more business and pay for the expenses. So from a financial standpoint, the experiment is a success, especially when you consider that images pertaining to me were broadcasted to over 20 million people on Instagram. Oh, clever. (laughs) He's clever. So... I, but think about what this means, Tom. Oh, For I an know expenditure what it means. Hey, look. of $57,000, you can reach 20 million people on Instagram, and you can have all kinds of characters who are your target audience texting you saying, Hey, Neil. How'd you know her? I've been following her on Instagram for Look years. At Mark, we, listen, we don't need 20 million impressions, so we're just going to do one of these signs. We know who, what is media unplugged? <laughs> What is medium? You know what? That's an excellent idea. Just a tiny little campaign will triple the number of listeners. That's an excellent idea. I'm glad we didn't share that on the podcast because now we can keep it to ourselves. <laughs> we can always have this edited out. <laughs> <laughs> That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us in other places at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check, and the fantabulous American Marketing Association. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the Uber producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media, You can fi- except for this show. You can find him... <laughs> <laughs> I should put that in, except for this show. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom A. Sacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.